You are seeing Travis Gage, a 12-year-old male with sickle cell anemia who comes to the emergency department with his mother. He says his lower legs, upper legs, and arms all hurt. Two days earlier, he developed a fever, cough, and sore throat, and then slowly his pain escalated in his extremities. He has had no trauma. His examination is remarkable for a temperature of 38.1 degrees Celsius and some erythema in his posterior oropharynx without exudate. His hemoglobin level is lower than his baseline with a remarkably elevated reticulocyte count. As you approach Travis and his mother, you consider, what treatment options will you recommend for his acute episode as well as long-term for prevention? Consider your answers as we begin this next episode. Welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing hematology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this episode, you will be able to 1. Define sickle cell disease. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of sickle cell disease. 3. Explain the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease. 4. Explain the diagnosis of sickle cell disease. And 5. Outline the management of sickle cell disease. Part 1. What is sickle cell disease? Sickle cell disease is an inherited disorder of hemoglobin called a hemoglobinopathy in which there is a mutation in one of the globin chain genes. There are many different hemoglobinopathies that have been identified, but sickle cell disease is by far the most common. In sickle cell disease, there is a point mutation of the beta globin chain, which leads to a glutamate being substituted by a valine at position 6. This results in a beta-globin chain that doesn't function properly, and the patient develops the symptoms of sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell disease is a type of hemolytic anemia, which occurs when red blood cells are destroyed faster than new red blood cells can be produced. Recall that in general, hemolysis can be due to increased red blood cell fragility, as in sickle cell disease, immune destruction of red blood cells, metabolic changes in the blood, including oxidative stress, or physical damage to red blood cells as they circulate through a damaged vascular system. Sickle cell disease is associated with many symptoms and complications related to both anemia and to occlusive disease when abnormal red blood cells clump in the smaller blood vessels. So why is it called sickle cell disease anyway? Well, the word sickle comes from a farming tool with a C-shaped blade that is used for cutting grain. The cells in sickle cell disease are red blood cells that have been contorted into a semicircular sickle-like shape. As you can imagine, this is not a great shape for a red blood cell. As we noted, one major problem is that these sickle-shaped red blood cells have a much shorter lifespan than normal red blood cells, so patients with sickle cell disease develop hemolytic anemia. The red blood cells also can clump in smaller blood vessels, especially when there is a lower level of oxygen, leading to vessel occlusion and downstream tissue damage due to the hypoxia. While improved monitoring and treatment have increased life expectancy in sickle cell disease, many children in resource-poor countries do not survive into adulthood. Let's review what we've covered with a question. Why does sickle cell disease cause anemia? Sickle cell disease leads to anemia because a mutation in the beta-globin chain gene causes red blood cells to have a semicircular or sickle shape and a shorter lifespan than normal cells. Sickle cell disease affects millions of people worldwide and is the most common inherited blood disorder in the United States. 
around 8% of black people in the United States are carriers of the sickle gene. Prevalence of the disease is highest among the people of sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean. Part 2. When do patients with sickle cell disease clinically present? Sickle cell disease is now tested as part of the newborn screening program in the United States, so neonates born here are diagnosed even before symptoms develop. Sickle cell disease symptoms tend to begin in late infancy or early childhood. This is when fetal hemoglobin levels drop and adult hemoglobin begins to take over. In sickle cell disease, hemoglobin F, which is present in fetal hemoglobin, is replaced by the abnormal adult sickled hemoglobin. Therefore, this is when anemia develops and symptoms begin. The symptoms of sickle cell disease can vary widely, with minimally symptomatic periods interrupted by acute episodes. Patients may have general symptoms of anemia, such as fatigue and shortness of breath. They may also present with symptoms related to hemolysis, like yellow eyes, called icterus, or yellow skin, jaundice. These latter symptoms are because hemoglobin is released into the circulation and is catabolized to bilirubin, leading to high concentrations of unconjugated bilirubin. This can sometimes cause bilirubin gallstones. Significant clinical presentations are also described as episodes of sharp, localized pain, for example, in the limbs or chest, due to red blood cell occlusion of blood vessels and downstream tissue hypoxia. These painful episodes recur, and often in the setting of specific triggers, which might include cold or dehydration or fever. Let's discuss these episodes more in depth. When red blood cells sickle, they lose their flexibility. The rigid, sickled cells get trapped in the capillaries throughout the body, including the reticular endothelial system of the spleen. This leads to blockage of blood flow through small vessels, resulting in ischemia, infarction, and pain wherever the blood vessels are blocked. There are a number of specific vaso-occlusive complications in sickle cell disease. The first we'll discuss is vaso-occlusion in the spleen, causing splenic ischemia, infarction, fibrosis, and eventual functional asplenia. Functional asplenia typically occurs in childhood and even as early as two to five years of age. Asplenia puts patients at an increased risk for infection, particularly with encapsulated bacteria that normally would be cleared by splenic macrophages. Particularly concerning are bacteremia and sepsis from encapsulated bacteria, such as Streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenzae, and Neisseria meningitidis. Another complication is called acute chest syndrome. This is due to clogging of the blood vessels of the lungs and is a life-threatening emergency. Acute chest syndrome leads to chest pain, fever, hypoxia, and dyspnea. It is a significant cause of hospitalization and one of the most common causes of mortality in sickle cell disease. Acute chest syndrome is often triggered by an infection. A third important and life-threatening complication are strokes due to occlusion of the cerebral arteries. Dactylitis, or ischemia in the bones of the hands and feet, may also cause pain and swelling of the hands and feet. This complication is most common in young childhood. Additionally, bone ischemia and infarctions may occur elsewhere. Particularly of note is ischemia of the hip and head of the femur, leading to avascular necrosis. This causes pain, often in the groin, and on bearing weight. Genitourinary vaso-occlusive complications include renal papillary necrosis in the kidney, leading to hematuria and impaired urinary concentrating functions, or isosthenuria. 
They also include sickle cell nephropathy, which is from ischemia of the glomerulus, leading to proteinuria and progressive chronic kidney disease. Lastly, they include priapism in men, which is a painful and prolonged erection due to occlusion of penile arteries. And now for a question break. In sickle cell disease, how is blood flow through small vessels blocked? In sickle cell disease, the sickle cells are less flexible than normal red blood cells, and thus unable to alter their shape to pass through narrow capillaries, leading to their blockage. And another question. What are some common presenting symptoms of patients with sickle cell disease? Patients may have symptoms of hemolytic anemia, such as shortness of breath or fatigue, or jaundice, or they may have symptoms from blood vessel occlusion, such as sharp localized pain. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease? Normal adult hemoglobin molecules, which consist of two beta chains and two alpha chains, are designated hemoglobin A. As mentioned, sickle cell disease is caused by a single point mutation in the beta chain of the hemoglobin gene. In sickle cell disease, the mutated beta chains combine with normal alpha chains, forming a hemoglobin variant designated hemoglobin S. This form of hemoglobin is poorly soluble when deoxygenated and forms sickle-shaped red blood cells that may clump and clog smaller blood vessels, leading to the occlusive disease of blood vessels that causes many of the complications we just discussed. Sickle cell disease is inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern, meaning a patient must inherit two mutated beta chain genes, one from each parent, to have the disease. Note that people who inherit only one mutated beta chain gene are carriers of the disease and are described as having sickle cell trait instead of sickle cell disease. Although patients with sickle cell trait do not express the full range of symptoms seen in sickle cell disease, they may experience some symptoms if exposed to extreme conditions, such as high altitude or dehydration. These symptoms include blood in the urine and renal papillary necrosis, which is necrosis of the renal tubular cells in the innermost part of the nephron. What is the specific gene mutation in sickle cell disease? Well, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the mutation occurs at the sixth codon position in the beta-globin gene. The GAG codon that normally codes for glutamate, a hydrophilic amino acid, is mutated to GTG, which codes for valine, a hydrophobic amino acid. A clue to how the sickle cell mutation evolved can be found in its geographic distribution within Africa, which correlates to the prevalence of malaria infections. Patients with sickle cell trait have some protection against malaria. One interesting theory of why this happens is the parasite that causes malaria will decrease oxygenation within the red blood cell it infects. This will cause the cell to sickle and then be cleared by the spleen, limiting the parasite's ability to reproduce and infect the host. So why do the red blood cells sickle? When hemoglobin S is in the taut or deoxygenated state, the mutated valine residue becomes exposed. Because valine is hydrophobic, the hemoglobin S molecules line up or polymerize with the valine residues facing inward to shield them from the hydrophilic environment of the blood vessel. This process results in the formation of long, inflexible strands of hemoglobin that contort the red blood cell into a sickle shape. Conditions that promote sickling of red blood cells are the same conditions that shift the oxygen dissociation curve to the right, including elevated temperature, for example, fever, hypercapnia, 
hypoxia, low flow states in the blood vessels where hemoglobin has the time to release lots of its oxygen, and acidemia, which decreases hemoglobin affinity for oxygen. In general, any type of systemic infection, including common colds, may also precipitate sickling for many of the above reasons. Let's review this with another question break. Can you name some of the conditions that would make red blood cells more likely to sickle? Acidemia, hypercapnia, and fever, as well as hypoxia and low flow states could all promote red blood cell sickling. A peripheral blood smear in sickle cell disease will show contorted sickle-shaped red blood cells rather than normal biconcave disc-shaped cells. A fraction of red blood cells may also appear as target cells. These cells, three-dimensionally, are thinner and have a centrally located disc of hemoglobin surrounded by a paler rim, giving the cell an appearance of a target. They arise due to conditions that cause the surface of red blood cells to increase disproportionately to their volume, for example, in conditions of a decrease in hemoglobin or in cellular dehydration, as might occur with low intracellular potassium, for example. Note that target cells are also seen in other conditions, including liver disease, thalassemias, iron deficiency, and after splenectomy. Howell jolly bodies are also commonly seen in patients with sickle cell disease. These are small remnants of DNA that normally are removed by the spleen, but in the absence of splenic function, for example in functional asplenia, they remain in red blood cells and are visible as deeply basophilic spherical inclusions. They are also seen in other types of asplenia. And now a question break. Can you name some of the abnormal cell types that may be seen on the blood smear in patients with sickle cell disease? In patients with sickle cell disease, sickle cells, target cells, and Howell jolly bodies are some abnormal cells commonly seen on the blood smear. Part 4. How do we diagnose sickle cell disease? Sickle cell disease is diagnosed through laboratory testing. In patients not already diagnosed through the newborn screening protocol, symptoms on history and signs on exams suggestive of hemolytic anemia and vaso-occlusive crises should prompt consideration and diagnostic testing. The complete blood count, or CBC, shows a hemolytic anemia with reticulocytosis and abnormalities on peripheral smear we just discussed. If sickle cell disease is suspected or considered, Ultimately, hemoglobin electrophoresis is the diagnostic test of choice to confirm sickle cell disease. This is the test that is done for newborn screening as well. In this test, free hemoglobin from hemolyzed red blood cells in a whole blood sample is loaded into wells in a gel. An electric charge is applied to the gel. Based on their size and charge, the proteins move to different places in the gel. The gel is then stained to see where the proteins migrated. Normal adult hemoglobin, or hemoglobin A with two normal alpha chains and two normal beta chains, migrates to a specific position on the gel relatively far from the cathode. Sickle cell hemoglobin, or hemoglobin S, with two normal alpha chains and two abnormal beta chains, migrates to a lesser degree, finishing in a position closer to the cathode. The electrophoresis tells us not only if hemoglobin S is present, but also whether the patient is heterozygous with sickle cell trait, one normal beta gene and one abnormal sickle beta gene, or homozygous with sickle cell disease, two sickle beta chain genes. And now for another question. 
What findings would you expect in a CBC of a patient with sickle cell disease? In a CBC of a patient with sickle cell disease, you would likely see low hemoglobin and hematocrit, as well as an elevated reticulocyte count. Part 5. How do we manage sickle cell disease? Management of sickle cell disease includes preventing infections, preventing and treating painful episodes, and managing the anemia. Due to the functional asplenia, it is very important to vaccinate patients with the meningococcal, pneumococcal, and H-influenzae type B vaccines. Patients will often receive prophylactic penicillin during childhood to help protect against pneumococcal infections as well. To prevent pain crises, patients should be advised to cease smoking, avoid excess alcohol, stay well hydrated, and avoid high altitude and overly strenuous exercise. Hydroxyurea has been shown to decrease the number of pain and acute chest pain syndrome episodes. Why is this? Well, the drug increases the amount of fetal hemoglobin. As we talked about, hemoglobin F is different from adult hemoglobin. It's different because it has two gamma subunits instead of beta subunits. The different structure is not subjected to the mutation and therefore increases the number of normally shaped red blood cells in circulation, and so the higher levels of hemoglobin F limits the polymerization that would occur with hemoglobin S. Treating anemia is part of the management for patients with sickle cell disease, too. Severe anemia is often treated by red blood cell transfusion, especially when the patient's hemoglobin level is falling rapidly or lower than baseline. It is also used when there is a stroke or acute chest syndrome. In addition, the patient should be supplemented with folic acid. In sickle cell disease, increased hematopoiesis will consume high levels of folate, which is an important cofactor for DNA and red blood cell synthesis. In severe cases of acute chest syndrome, stroke, and priapism, an exchange transfusion can be done to remove sickled cells and replace them with normal donor red blood cells. Acute chest syndrome may also require supplemental oxygen and empiric antibiotics covering pneumonia-causing pathogens. Lastly, treating acute pain episodes is an essential part of caring for patients with sickle cell disease. The first-line treatment is hydration, usually with IV fluids and analgesics. Vasoocclusive crises are extremely painful, and prompt, appropriate dosing of pain medication is key. Bone marrow or stem cell transplants can potentially be curative, but are considered only for patients with severe sickle cell disease complications. Let's finish off with one more question break. How are sickle pain crises best prevented? To avoid pain crises, patients with sickle cell disease should stop smoking and avoid excess alcohol. They should remain well hydrated and avoid high altitude and overly strenuous exercise. The drug hydroxyurea is also useful. And that's all I have today for sickle cell disease. Let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. First, can you define sickle cell disease? Sickle cell disease is a hemoglobinopathy caused by mutation in a beta-globin chain gene, which results in a globin chain that causes the red blood cells to form a sickle shape when exposed to certain stressors like hypoxia. Next, can you describe the clinical presentation of sickle cell disease?
Patients may present with symptoms of anemia or pain in different regions of the body due to ischemic occlusion of vessels, leading to painful vaso-occlusive episodes. Common triggers of acute episodes include cold, dehydration, strenuous exercise, and febrile illness. Occlusive complications include asplenia, acute chest syndrome, avascular necrosis of the head of the femur, stroke, priapism, and renal papillary necrosis, among others. Can you explain the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease? The sickle-shaped cells have a decreased lifespan, resulting in a hemolytic anemia and occlusion of small blood vessels. Sickle cell disease is inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern. It is due to a substitution of valine for glutamate in the beta-hemoglobin molecule, called hemoglobin S. The variant hemoglobin S polymerizes into long and flexible chains, which leads to hemolysis and a decreased red blood cell lifespan, as well as clumping in small vessels, leading to vaso-occlusion. Now, can you discuss how to diagnose sickle cell disease? A complete blood count shows decreased hemoglobin and hematocrit with an increased reticulocyte count. A peripheral smear shows sickle cells, target cells, and Howell Jolly bodies. Hemoglobin electrophoresis is the diagnostic test of choice for sickle cell disease due to the specific migration pattern of hemoglobin S that is different from normal adult hemoglobin. Lastly, can you outline the management of sickle cell disease? Prevention includes immunizations to prevent infection with encapsulated bacteria, avoiding dehydration, avoiding smoking, tobacco use, and excess alcohol intake, and use of hydroxyurea to prevent pain episodes. Management of pain episodes includes hydration, analgesics, and when severe or life-threatening, exchange transfusion as well as empiric antibiotics when there are infectious concerns. Thinking back to Travis George, your patient who presents with fever and severe pain of the legs and arms, as well as a sore throat, you consider, what treatment options would you recommend for his acute episode, as well as long-term prevention? Given Travis's underlying diagnosis of sickle cell disease, you are concerned for a vaso-occlusive pain crisis causing ischemia of his bones, precipitated by an upper respiratory infection. You explained to Travis and his mother that you'd like to admit him to the hospital for IV fluids. These fluids will ensure his hydration is improved and help decrease the sickling and improve his symptoms. In the meantime, you also want to treat his pain with strong pain medications. Given his fever, you send his blood for culture and start him on antibiotics, covering encapsulated bacteria to be sure an infection does not get worse while you await the results. Once Travis is feeling better, you can discuss strategies to improve his hydration and increase it during periods of illness. You suggest when he next sees his hematologist to discuss whether he'd benefit from a medication called hydroxyurea to also prevent these episodes. And that's all I have for today's audio break. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, and flashcards, as well as active learning. Stay healthy out there. <laughs>